And the rest of us, if you grab your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Revelation 19 and 20. We're approaching the end of our series on eschatology, and there's no pun intended that we're approaching the end. Uh, today, today and next Sunday, Lord willing, will be the two last uh, lessons that we have on this series. Uh, last Sunday will be to catch whatever we haven't covered yet, so uh, it shouldn't be too much there. Uh, and so we'll start something new the following week. Well, the following Sunday, Scott's going to be teaching Sunday school, and then we'll start something new the following Sunday. After Sunday after that. Of all the arguments for covenantal premillennialism, for historic premillennialism, the biblical evidence, as I see it, for two resurrections is the most convincing to me. Which is interesting because for if you're not a historic premillennialist, if you're an amillennialist or postmillennialist, uh, often the most convincing argument to you is also the only the existence of one uh, resurrection. So we, we both are on the same boat there. So we'll try to finish talking about the resurrection today and then conclude the series next Sunday. Uh, so uh, we'll talk about the resurrection from the dead today. And we started last week looking at our confession. Uh, this is the Bible Presbyterian Church version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you want to see the unamended version, you can open in your hymnal to page 867 for the original text. But our confession, the confession of the Bible Presbyterian Church, says this. At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, such living persons as are found in Him shall not die but be changed, and all the dead in Christ shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies, and none other, although with different qualities which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall, after Christ has reigned on earth a thousand years, be raised by the power of God to dishonor. So this amendment, uh, in my understanding, my belief, brings the confession in alignment with what the Bible teaches, that the idea there would be two separate resurrections of the just and of the unjust. I want to start by reviewing what we saw last week of, uh, about Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 and how they work together. If you look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 19, you see that that passage is speaking of, the, of Christ's physical return to the world. Look at verse 11. We're going to read verses 11 through 19. Now I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. 
Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And then the verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What we read here, as I believe, is the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's more than that, is all the events surrounding the consummation of time. The emphasis of this vision is on the coming of Christ as the conqueror. He is pictured as riding on a white horse, like a warrior with his army. He will smite the nations with his word. Now, some people say that uh, some, some, not all, but some amillennialists and some postmillennialists say that this is not a, a description of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, but is the operation of the church throughout the ages. That this is happening right now. Uh, that uh, as the gospel goes out, as people are converted, as, as people don't respond to the gospel, Christ is judging the world by doing that. Uh, I, if that's the case then, if this pastor is not speaking about the physical return of Christ, then the book of Revelation does not speak of it at all. You know, the book of Revelation will not include any mentioning of the return of Christ. But I think the best way to understand that is that Revelation 20 and 21, the fall of Revelation 19, is a commentary on what chapter 19 teaches. So John sees his vision in Revelation 19, and then he spends chapter 20 and 21 describe explaining that vision. Much like Genesis 1 is a description of the whole of creation, and then Genesis 2 is a description of a particular thing in creation that is the creation of humanity. So, if that's the case, then these three chapters, 19, 20, 21, are not sequential, but they are concurrent. So, 19 happens, and then 20, 21 describe what 19 is talking about. Any questions before we continue on what I just said? All right. The crux of the matter for this lesson is Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. So you have your Bible open there. We can um, look at that. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead 
did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Let me start by saying this. I've not found any view, including my own, that satisfactorily addresses these two verses in their entirety. There's a struggle with verse 4 in every one of the Reformed views, in every eschatological view, in that if you look at verse 4, it speaks of those martyred for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But both, not both, but all amillennialism, postmillennialism, and historic premillennialism includes all Christians in that category. So uh, all three have a difficulty with this particular verse. And I'm not going to try to explain that because I already told you I haven't found that, that explanation uh, just yet. But I think the covenant, covenant, covenantal premillennialism view leaves less out of the explanation. So, if you look in your Bible, if you have a New King James, the end of verse 4 reads, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It is better to translate the particular verb as they came to life. The verb, they lived, in the New King James, is better understood as they came to life. If you have an ESV, that's how the ESV translated it. I didn't check the NIV or the NASB, but the ESV translated, they came, they, and they, li- they came to life, which is a better understanding of that v- uh, verb there. It's a, it's a just to get very ge- Greeky here, not geeky, but it could be geeky too, but Greeky. It's a third-person verb, so it's he, she, it, or they. It is plural, so it's going to be they. It is active, so there's something that they are doing, coming to life. It is eris, that is something that happened in the past, at least the, from the perspective of the speaker. And remember, John is seeing these things that might be future to him, but he described what he saw. So he uses past tense to describe that. Does it make sense to you? All right. And it is... Indicative, meaning it's not a potential thing that's going to happen, stated as a matter of fact, as, as part of reality there. So the question is, how did they come to life in verse 4? Spiritual or physical life? Is verse 4 talking about spiritual life or physical life? Verse 5 is universally agreed upon as a physical resurrection. When I say universally, I mean in the stuff that's written. You know, People might vary in there, but... Uh, officially, verse 5, in all positions, is considered to be a physical resurrection, a physical coming to life of the unjust. The debate is on the first resurrection there in verse 4. So is this first resurrection of the body or of the soul? Now, the, the word translated, they came to life by itself, cannot tell us if it is a physical or a spiritual resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 6, and in that context, a cousin word, a word that's similar to the word in Revelation 20, is used to indicate our spiritual resurrection, that is, the moment we come to salvation. In uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, By God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together is a, is a, is a related word to the, relate, to the word in Revelation. This is clearly a spiritual resurrection, right? It's our coming to life spiritually 
when God changes our heart and we are regenerated at that point. In John 5, 20, in the context of 25 through 29, the very same word that is in Revelation uh, is used to teach a spiritual resurrection. In John 5, 25, it says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is come, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the, the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And in the context, it's not talking about something at the coming of Christ, but the coming to life of faith, not of the physical resurrection. So the argument then that some make is that Revelation 20 should be interpreted according to these passages. So it's spiritual over here, so be spiritual over there. However, there are some important differences between the two passages. The Gospel of John... In the Gospel of John, the context itself demands a spiritual resurrection. You read Revelation 20, the context doesn't demand that. The first group in John, in John chapter 5, the hour has already come for their souls to be redeemed. In Revelation 20, the souls of the ones being raised are already redeemed. Right? It's stated, these are the ones who died for the sake of Christ, who died in faith in Christ. So it's not a matter of redemption there. It's something that follows redemption. So I don't think that there's neither a need or contextual demand to interpret came to life in Revelation 20 as a spiritual resurrection. Any, any questions before we continue? Tim? I thought the catechism said that we have souls that will never die. Correct. So that would be inconsistent with that. Right, so what happens is that those that believe that that resurrection... So what Tim said, our catechism says we have souls that never died, which is true. It's a reflection of what the Bible says, that we have souls that never died. And to be inconsistent with that. The way that that inconsistency is addressed is that those that believe that the resurrection, verse 4, is spiritual, says that that's when we come to life at our salvation. It's not talking anything about the end times. So that's, that, that's and the scriptures do address our salvation as a coming to life. Now, believe in Jesus that you might have life, and life more abundantly. Right, John chapter 10. So that's how they're, they're addressed there. And every soul is immortal. Right? Either go to hell or to heaven, but it's, it, they are immortal there. So, I'm sorry, this is a super technical, but it's important. And uh, if you don't get it, that's okay. It's not the end of the world, as I'm going to say. So the last ends ends like this. A lot of what I'm saying here doesn't really matter <laughs> to your salvation or to your eternal destiny. We're gonna, there's three things that really matter. Do you believe in Jesus? He's coming back. You're coming back to, coming back to life to live forever with him. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell forever, which is a serious thing. It's not some, that last is not something you decide when he comes back. It's something you have to decide now. Do you believe in Jesus now? And that's what the, the matter resides so now that I say it doesn't matter, you can just, let's just go home. No, that, uh, I'll continue. How is this word used in the book of Revelation? Well, look at the, can somebody turn to Revelation 2, verse 8, and read it very loudly so that everybody can hear? Revelation 2, verse 8. All right, so in the, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of, does it go? The first and the last, who died and came to life. 
the words of the first and left, who died and came to life. Who is it talk? Who is, who is that one, the first and last, who died and came to life? Christ. What is the reference to the died and came to life? His death, right? Physical death and his physical resurrection. That came to life there is the very same word in Revelation 20. Right? Uh, somebody else, could you read Revelation 13, 14? Really loudly so everybody can hear. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. All right. So in verse 13, uh, in, in verse 3 of that same chapter, it says the beast died. And in the scheme of the, the book, it seems to be a literal death. But in verse 14 that Daniel just read, says that the beast lived. That's, again, the word came to life. And it seems to be, in the context, a literal coming back to life of this beast, whatever that beast is. And then, in Revelation 20, verse 5, as I already said, there is uh, agreement that that came to life there is a physical coming to life. So you see that in the entirety of the book of Revelation, every time that the verb is used, that word is used, is to indicate a physical resurrection, the only exception, if there is an exception, then it would be verse 4. That's not good exegesis. To look at how something's used everywhere and then say, but the place I want, that's an exception. I don't have a warrant to do that in the book, in, in the writing of John, in Revelation chapter, in Revelation, the whole book, but this is going to be the case here. And the reason that people do that is because they think that the rest of the scriptures overwhelm that and uh, it will allow them to do that. So as I see it, John 5 that we saw earlier in Ephesians 2 are not truly analogous to Revelation 20. I, I believe that both times in verses 4 and 5, the word is referring to a physical resurrection. And notice that there are two types of dead there in that passage. One group who died in Christ, and because of Christ, and then the rest. And the, so the two groups are divided there. Another thing to keep in mind as you study the Bible here, as, as you do what's called exegesis, bring, bringing out of the text its meaning. It's rare where an author in the Bible uses a word in proximity to one another to have completely different meaning without some very clear note that that is the case. Now, you can see that in Proverbs 26. Remember when it says, answer the fool according to his folly, don't answer the fool according... There, the contrast is obviously made by the context itself, that the Spirit meant different things by the same word. But here, there's no, no clue of that. And yet, the two came to life expressions are separated only by 13 words in the original language. It's unlikely that there is a change in meaning without any clue in the text. All right? One last wordy thing. The word resurrection. Anastasis. You ever heard of somebody called Anastasia? That's just another word for the resurrection. And that's why, because it was a common Greek name of the time, when uh, Paul preached to the Areopagus in Acts 17, 
they thought that he was talking about uh, two new gods, Jesus and Anastasia, when he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection uh, there. But this word resurrection here is used 42 times in the New Testament. You can see that I like this stuff, right? Uh, I know it's weird and may not even be helpful to you, but I like it. So again, I get to stand up here. So, um, The word resurrection is 42 times in the New Testament. Now, this is something that my Greek professor, I guess, has been listening to these lessons and pointing me to. And I checked them all, all 42 of them, translated them, and checked for myself. Every one of them, 41 of them, in the rest of the New Testament, is a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. This would be the only place where the word resurrection is used in a non-literal way. And again, you look at the context, other than being a prophetic, apocalyptic genre of literature, you don't get anything from the context that says, okay, this is, of the 42 times, this is going to be the exception. This is going to be the one that's used differently, without any clue from this in the text. Any questions before we continue? Everybody's so puzzled. This is one of those lessons that you have to teach like several times uh, in order to uh, maybe create some categories of questions and so on. But this, this, this interpretation agrees with the rest of the New Testament. For example, in John 5, verses 28 and 29, which is on the screen, it says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Remember verse 25 that we read just a little bit earlier where it says that the hour has come and now is that they will come to life. Here, see how, how he changes here? He gives a clue that he's talking about something different. The hour is coming, but there's no now is following this. That is going to be a resurrection. And John separates the two resurrections, repeating the, now, the resurrection of. He doesn't say the resurrection of the just and the unjust. He said the resurrection of those who have done good and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the condemnation. He separates them by repeating the words, the resurrection of, which are unnecessary. Jesus here simply states that there will be a different resurrection for the just and for the unjust without saying anything about the timing of the resurrection. The word hour is often used to just negate a period of time. Um, often in the Bible, the hour is much longer than the days. Days, plural, tend to always be literal, where hour and day, singular, tend to be figurative, often there. So it doesn't demand uh, 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 immediate general resurrection, uh, this word often designates a longer period of time. Now, the passage that shows that this is consistent is Acts 24, 15. It says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that the, there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the Jews and of the unjust. Here's Paul speaking. And he notices that there are Pharisees and Sadducees in this meeting that's going to try him. He knows that they disagree on this issue, and he wants to save his skin. So he says, I'm here because of the resurrection. And then the, the Pharisees and Sadducees start fighting with each other. It's like a Presbyterian exam for pastors. You know, if the, the candidate's smart enough, you bring up something controversial that the pastors and elders start fighting with each other, and he'll be left off the hook. And that's what happened here with, uh, with Paul. 
But <clears throat> do you notice this? So this is a New King James. The New King James translation, when it adds a word in English to help us understand the meaning, but it's not in the original language, they add it in italics. Do you see how the does are all in italics in this passage? Yes, it is. It is all in italics. See, the, the dead, the just, the unjust. You see that there? That means that the, the article is not there. The technical term for that is that they all used in an unarthrous way, without the article, which indicates that it's not talking about a specific thing, but a quality. He's going to come, and there will be a resurrection of those that have the quality of being dead. Okay? And both also, in, in, of those dead, the quality of being dead, there'll be some that have the quality of being just, and some that have the quality of being unjust. So it's not specifying that things are happening at the same time. The, what's called the Granville Sharp Rule does not apply to this because there's no articles present. And then there's an, and also that's not translated into English. We indicate that there's a separation between these two groups. Paul's not viewing them as all happening at the same time. He's separating these two groups there. And one last passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 24 where it says, but each of one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Here Paul makes a clear separation. Christ, first fruits, right? Then those that are in Christ. Then after that comes the end, when all things are going to be turned uh, to, to Christ. And if you look at verse 26, we didn't quote here, the end is when death itself is destroyed, which is consistent with how the book of Revelation chapter 20 goes in that sequence of events there as well. <clears throat> and the end spoken then ties it with a revelation, the second death in Revelation chapter 20, the same sort of language. So this position is consistent with the scriptures, and I believe does does damage to the text, but just does less damage to the text. I'm a historic premill by, def- by, what's the word I want to use? By settlement. You know, I settled for this because it's, in my mind is the one that, le- that leaves less scripture out of the bucket. You know, I think every, every position has a bucket and tries to put systematically all the different scriptures in the bucket. For me, there's less left outside the bucket in this position, but I'm acknowledged right right now in front of you that there are portions that are difficult to fit in my bucket. The parables of the kingdom are very difficult to fit in my bucket. The idea that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and will grow and grow and grow and take over everything, that kind of stuff is difficult to fit in my bucket. Uh, As I said before, and don't mean to offend you, though that doesn't concern me very often. Um, <laughs> the position, I think, that leaves the most, bu- most verses out of the buck is the amillennialist position. Uh, that, I think, even though that's the predominant Reformed position, I think it accounts for less of the scriptures in it. So, any questions? We have just one more item to finish, and uh, we'll be done for today. Any, any questions? So one last thing I want to talk about is the nature of the resurrected body. 
uh, how are those bodies going to be? Well, the body of the unsaved, our standards say that they are going to be raised to dishonor. So they will have physical substance, but the scriptures never speak of the body of the unsaved when they are raised as a glorious body. That's only a term used for the bodies of the saved. But these bodies, though not glorious, will befit their wicked hearts. And there will be bodies that are perfectly able to suffer forever. Does it, do you understand that? Uh, if you're getting burnt, eventually that's going to stop hurting because you're going to just die. That's not how suffering forever goes. You're perfectly able to suffer forever without ever stopping or relief. And all the while, cursing God, there's not going to be anybody in eternal hell who desires to go to heaven. Can you imagine that? They all the while angry with God while still suffering. People, the souls in hell and the bodies of the people in hell, ultimately, they're not going to be there saying, oh man, I made a mistake. They're still going to be in enmity with, with God, even then. The bodies of the saved, you know, uh, they'll be the, the same bodies as during life. You know, there'll be a physical substance. Uh, it, this, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says they're going to be patterned after the body of Christ. So you can take a look at what Christ was able to do after the resurrection. He was able to eat fish. So at least we're going to eat sushi. No, this, sorry, that might sound like hell to some of you. That's not... <laughs> But, but just in the case, of, it's a physical body. It's able to be touched. Remember what he told, um, remember what he told Thomas? Hey, don't believe me? Just put your hand on my side, right here. Touch the marks on my hands and wrists and so on. So there's a physicality. Uh, it, in Luke 14, his body is called flesh and bone. Now, one thing that I don't know if it was particular to Jesus was going to be... Uh, and this might sound weird. Do you know what it is, Danita? Well, is it walking through walls? Exactly. Uh, the, uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is able to transport himself supernaturally. Remember, uh, the, the upper room on that Sunday, after the crucifixion, the first two Sundays, uh, the authors of the New Testament go out of their way and say, the door being locked. Jesus appeared in their midst. So if that's a feature of the resurrected body, of everybody or not, I don't know. Because Jesus has this one particular thing that he's both man and God. So uh, uh, that might be something to it. Or it can be just an extraordinary thing that God did for him. Because he did that for Philip too. Remember in Acts chapter 8, where Philip is talking to eunuch, and all of a sudden he's gone and he's in a town a few miles down the road. Uh, the impression we get is that it's miraculously. But it's a, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says it's a body that's full of honor, full of power. It's called a spiritual body, but it's also called, uh, it says that there's flesh and bones in it. And it's incorruptible, that it cannot be changed. So Adam was created in a state of being able to change. He could sin and could not sin. After the fall, Adam, the humanity became, was put in a state of not being able not to sin. Really good English, right? Double negative here. Uh, put in a, stage where, a state where the only thing they could do is sin. When we're redeemed, 
in essence, we're put back in a state of where Adam was, you know, of being able to sin, not sin, and being able to sin, though our bendings, according to the scriptures, if we believe the scriptures, not to sin. Romans 6, right? Sin no longer has dominion over you. Whereas the unbeliever cannot do anything but sin, the believer has the Spirit of God and the grace of God that enables him or her not to sin. But at the resurrection, we're going to be in a state of not being able to sin. So it's better than what Adam was. There will be no change. It will be incorruptible. It cannot be corrupted. We cannot sin. But at the end of the day, this is what matters. Okay? Christ is coming back. His people will be forever with him in a bodily form. And unbelievers will keep on dying forever. That's, that's how hell is described, the state of dying forever. And that is decided right now. Not in the future, but right now. What you believe concerning Christ is what decides what kind of coming you are going to experience. Are you going to be those that Christ is going to destroy at his coming? Or those that he's going to raise to life eternal with him? That's really where the important stuff Really, is. These things are important, but as a secondary to this, these major doctrines of the return of Christ and your standing with Christ at his return. Any questions? Linda and then Rick. No, this whole Bible is being about what the Bible. This whole study is being about what the Bible says regarding the resurrection of the dead, and well, they have to be dead. Uh, the just and the unjust being separated by a period of time. That uh, Revelation twenty says a thousand years. In my view, whether it's a thousand years or ten fifty or nine fifty or eleven hundred, it's not as important. Though there's no reason to not go with a thousand. But there is a two resurrections separated by a time. Rick? In, in talking about the resurrection of the dead, or in, in the spiritual bodies or physical bodies, we're, we're, I'm not sure where it says in scripture, but it says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. How is that viewed as far as the condemnation of man? So that's uh, Philippians 2, verses. Uh, 9, 8, and 10, or so around there, or 9, 10, 11, uh, the exaltation of Christ. And that's completely a right. You know, well, it has to be, the Bible says. Every, every knee will bow. Some will be bowed by grace, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and others will bow under the sheer weight of God's wrath being upon them. But every knee will bow, and every knee will recognize. Some will say, Christ is Lord, and I love him. And some will say, Christ is Lord, and I hate him for that. Any other questions before we finish? Visa. Uh, so next week, are we going to talk about like, the great white throne? No. Okay, mm-hmm. not that no. No. Just for that, you can read the Left Behind series. No, I'm sorry. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't read that series. <laughs> no. No. Uh, no I, all I want to do, I, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to get into specifics. Who's going to be the beast? Now, who's the Antichrist? 
uh, and so on. But I wanted to, I want to give you some hooks to hang a general framework of the doctrine of eschatology. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you for the fact that, you, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Father, we pray that you, we, that will be a great hope, the hope of the resurrection, and that we live now based on that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.